0: We're going to do things a little bit different. Uh, I'm actually going to read this morning, and um, I would encourage you as we listen, this is a passage that we've read many times as God's people, especially on the day of Pentecost. And there are things in this passage that we love and treasure and delight in, but I want you to do something today that you might not do while you read. I want you to listen, and if it helps to close your eyes, you have my permission Um, I want you to listen, and I want you to picture what's happening. When we're listening to God's Word, we don't just hear it, oh, that's nice, Jesus rose from the dead. No, I want you to imagine your, I want you to use your imagination to see the tomb open, to see Him come forth. Not that we create some picture of Jesus inwardly to adore, but rather that we use our imagination to behold the mystery of what we are reading about. And we're going to read from Acts 2 uh, 1 through 41 this morning. It is a longer reading, and most of my message this morning actually is just a survey through the scriptures. However, I wanted to encourage you before we began reading that while we're reading, engage your imagination to see what's taking place. This will help you greatly to make connections to other places in the scripture because the way that God tells a story throughout his entire word, throughout his entire history with man, is he does things that remind you of other things. And when we engage our imagination, we're able sometimes to see those things in a new light. So please stand with me as we look at our reading this morning. This is from Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, "'Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy.'" and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and all who and for all who are far off everyone whom the lord our god calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation so those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen, brothers and sisters. Let the one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to his church. Amen. Please be seated. It's my privilege this morning to engage with this text and explore what Pentecost means. The title of this message is that God is sending the spirit to gather the nations. Please join with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given your people not only sure and steadfast promises through Joel, through David, through all of your scripture, but that we, your church, have access to good narrative history of what Peter spoke and how he explained what they saw that day. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the beauty of your power in time and in history as the Lord of all, as the one who gathers the nations and tracks down man who has run from you. We pray that you would open our eyes to your glory, not only in history, but through your scriptures, and that you would enable us to see the privilege of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So unlike... Uh, normal. I do not have a outline for you on the slides. However, I want to just present an idea, four ideas rather that are all one idea. The first and main idea is this: that in the outpouring of the Spirit, God is fulfilling all of His covenant promises, and therefore He sets apart His people to witness to the present reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. That was what Peter said. Peter said of this we bear witness, and this is what you see and you hear. So the aim of a passage like this, the aim of this passage, is that we who are called by Christ must repent of our sins. Peter answers the the congregation there gathered in Jerusalem. He says, "'Repent and be baptized, be set apart, be washed from your sins, Be, be renewed and receive the Holy Spirit.'" The reason for this is the apostles cannot alone bear witness to the resurrection all of the house of Israel is to know that Jesus has been demonstrated by God to be the Lord God in the flesh and Christ the anointed Messiah to sit on the throne of the father Dave, of his father David therefore on pentecost when we celebrate pentecost as a church We celebrate the sending of the Holy Spirit upon Christ's church. We don't just celebrate a wonderful day in which we remember the blessing of individual gifts of the Holy Spirit, but we recognize the creation of the church by God. In the sending forth of the Spirit, we recognize the beginning fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout all of redemptive history. Let me say that again because it's a radical claim compared with the coming life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the sending forth of the Spirit, we begin to see the fulfillment of everything that God promised to do through Jesus Christ. That is to say, what Jesus did accomplished redemption, but that accomplished redemption has never, be, at the ascension of Jesus Christ, has not been applied to God's people he has not actually begun to do what the cross aimed at doing yes the cross accomplished the atonement however as the westminster catechism and westminster confession teaches us the redemption that Christ accomplished in the atonement does not justify sinners until that justification is applied by the holy spirit therefore without Pentecost, this is a radical claim, the cross is of little value. Because what Jesus does on the cross has to be announced to the world. And that annunciation, that that pronouncement, that witnessing of the gospel to the nations is the point of the cross, as we celebrated last week in Ascension. As we saw in the heavenly throne room that the nations have now come, and they're recognizing and streaming to the Lamb, and they're praising Him, for you have gathered a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Unless God does what He did at Pentecost, the Lamb has not done His work. That work is not finished. Therefore, throughout the entire Scriptures, we hear little promises from God of how He's going to bless man and call him back to himself, even though he has turned from God to sin and idolatry. In the coming of the Holy Spirit, God begins to reveal how Christ's purchase will actually flow to the nations through the proclamation of what Christ has done and what God has done through his Son to form a redeemed people, the church. Therefore, this scriptural account of Pentecost reminds us as Christians that we must be sanctified. Not only are we to be washed externally, we are to be washed by the Holy Spirit. We, are, we have a common problem, as all Christians have, done, ha, have had since the beginning of the church. We routinely dismiss the importance of the Holy Spirit. We fail to see the privilege of His presence and activity in our lives And most chiefly, we fail to understand how we are to play a part in this mission that God has been accomplishing throughout history. Pentecost helps us to remember that God's promises to Abraham are not only world-changing, but they're worldwide. God wants to change the entire world, and every hand is needed. Therefore, as disciples of Christ, we must become, like the apostles, witnesses to the mighty deeds of God to every nation under heaven. It's a beautiful thing I have already seen this morning in our church. People are wearing garb from other nations as a way to celebrate Pentecost. And that was intentional. Some of you got that, some of you didn't join in that. That's fine. No one, I don't think anyone sent out a memo. The point is they're expressing an understanding that they are called to go to the nations. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to call. I want you to uh, turn to Genesis one. We're going to be spending the majority of our time in the book of Genesis this morning, and then briefly interacting with our text, uh, with the reading text. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews. So I want to take you through a brief history of the entire redemptive history of God in creation. As I said, throughout the entire Scriptures, God is revealing His desire to dwell among His people by His Holy Spirit, to bless them with His gracious presence. At the very beginning of Scripture, God provides a picture of this anticipation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth was without form. I want, again, imagine that, a a globe that is surrounded in darkness, that is shrouded, if you will, by the waters. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And listen to this. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So can you picture that? Obviously, we're not trying to imagine the Spirit's ethereal form. That's not the point. The point is, there's a globe, and the Spirit is hovering over that globe. Why is He hovering? Well, there's a reason that He's hovering. He has no place, or rather should we say, no temple of men in which he can come and dwell. Immediately after God has created the land and made man from the earth, immediately after this, he bestows upon man life. And then he places that man in a sanctuary. So this is beginning to form a picture. First, the spirit is hovering. He has no place to land. As soon as there is land... And as soon as there is man, the spirit comes and dwells. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living soul. Most translations say soul. The ESV says creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. So we see from the beginning of the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit wishes to land somewhere. And as soon as there is one who can receive the gift of the Spirit or the life of the Spirit, the blessing of God in His image bearers, God immediately indwells that person who is man, the prototype of all of humanity. But, however, after this man steals from the tree in the garden, God comes down to look upon what has happened, and he pronounces a judgment. If you remember in Genesis, God uh, seven times looks at his creation and pronounces good, 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 and very good, culminating with the creation of man and the placing of man and his wife in the garden As soon as man steals from the tree in the garden, God again comes down and He looks at what has happened and He pronounces judgment. This word for cool in Genesis 3 verse 8 is also translated as wind. And this word is not imagining a gentle breeze, but rather a violent storm, a rushing wind coming down from heaven to look at what has taken place. This is why not only because of his nakedness, but this is why Adam hides himself, because he hears a terrifying sound come down out of heaven. In Genesis 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in, as I'm going to read it, in the wind of the day. Your Bibles at the bottom have a footnote that explains sometimes there's some, uh, Hebrew's a very different language, and sometimes there's either two manuscripts with different words, and we have to make a, a wise choice. The other time is, it's, it's not very clear how to translate it. It's hard to get that idea into a different language. If you've ever learned another language, that, that idea makes sense. They heard the Lord God walking in the wind of the day, and the man and his wife hid himself from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. After God's judgment of Adam, he expels him from the garden sanctuary, postponing an immediate sentence of death and providing only a temporary covering. What we learn from this is even in the midst of judgment, God is stunningly merciful. God withholds the sentence of death that he pronounced over those who steal from that tree. He not only withholds the sentence of death or suspends it for a time, he also provides a covering. For Adam. The word for covering is the same word as is used for the word atonement. God makes a way for Adam to not fall under the immediate consequences of his sin. Though God had desired to dwell with man, God's spirit could not find a suitable home among the wickedness of men. After Adam and Eve leave the garden, they begin to bear children, and those children, we understand, immediately murder each other and war with one another and set up factions and tribes and are filled with evil at all times. In the days of Noah, God revealed the disharmony that his breath of life has with the wickedness of men. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, then the Lord said, notice what happened, remember what happened with Adam. God breathed in Adam the breath of life. And then in Genesis 6, 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every thought of the, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. In verse 7, if you remember the echoes of Genesis 1, God is saying that he is sorry for what has happened in the creation. It grieves him. This is what we call anthropathic language, or an, it's not anthropomorphic. It's God. God is expressing himself in a way that men can understand, that God is lamenting or regretting that he has made man because that man has has infected all of creation. And that's why God says, the face of the land, man, animals, creeping things, and birds. It sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? In verse 8, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Just as Adam, the man, had been expelled from the land, so now men are going to be expelled from the earth. In this great flood, God first decreates the world. Remember that picture of the earth surrounded by waters and covered with darkness, and a shroud of emptiness or void is on the face of the deep. God says he is going to push out man from the face of the land. God first, before restoring his creation, essentially, and I'm coining a phrase here, he decreates before he recreates. He's, he's taking everything that he has set up, and he is going to bring it back to a state of formless and void. Then once again, he moved by his spirit to recreate the world. In Genesis verse uh, 8, verses 1 and 6 through 12, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts of the livestock that were with him. Listen carefully. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. At the end of 40 days, Noah, verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. Again, I want you to imagine the picture of what's taking place here. He sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him he waited another 7 days is this picture quite clear what what happens in 7 days creation happens in 7 days he waited another 7 days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening and behold In her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. What has happened since the first time the raven was sent out and now the dove? Now there's ground and now there are plants coming up out of the ground. Verse 12, then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. In this history of the sending forth of the dove, we see God painting a picture That picture is the Spirit's hovering over creation. Just as the dove was sent out again and again, the Spirit, moving over the waters, stirred and invigorated the earth until it was a suitable place to dwell. However, even after Noah's righteousness, men still rebelled. They gathered at Babel to resist God's plan and to be seen as great. Though called to take dominion for God over the whole earth by multiplying, that is bearing children, man wants to exalt himself. In Genesis 11, just a few generations after the flood, we see what is in the heart of man. In Genesis eleven four and 5, the men said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. We know from Scripture that man's rebellion is always futile and fruitless. It actually comes to nothing, and God is the one who brings it to nothing. This amazing boast that the men had, that they were going to build a city and a tower that reached up into the heavens, God answers that ambition with a joke. In Genesis eleven five. When it says the Lord comes down, the Lord came down to see the city. It has this picture of a giant. It is the picture of a giant who has to stoop down to recognize whether that is an a- an ant or a spider. Mm-hmm. It's it's this ridiculous commentary on this am- the ambitions of men to build a tower to reach up in the heavens, and it sa- and God says and. In verse five, and the Lord came down to see it's he 's stooping down to even take notice of what 's going on again, this is anthropomorphic anthropopathic language. it is an expression in which of course God can see everything, but being the greatness of who He is, he expresses his majesty and magnanimity by saying i 've got what you 're doing is so insignificant, I have to come down and notice with a with a magnifying glass, what's going down here on the earth? Just as God saw Adam's sin and then comes and observes and evaluates or judges and then expels, and also God sent, saw the sin of the men in Noah's day, so now He comes down to see and to judge man's deeds. In Genesis 11:7 through9, he says, We are hearing the voice of the Trinity, if you will, having counsel together. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not be able to understand another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What was God's desire for Adam? To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. Their their concern, their rebellion said, we do not want to be spread over all the earth. And God, in his judgment, allowed man to suffer the consequences of his rebellion, but not in such a way that man in this passage, was ultimately finally destroyed. God sends the people throughout the whole earth. And immediately after sending them or scattering the nations in judgment, God then has something to do about it. God, in the very next chapter of Genesis, calls Abraham that through Abraham, he might go and track down or hunt down those nations who have now been scattered. And he calls Abraham and gives him a promise to fulfill a redemptive grace that answers the judgment which he had to bring against sin. In Genesis twelve two and 3, Abraham is promised by God, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That word for families is nations, peoples, cultures, ethnicities. In you, Abraham, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. So what God does in in these patterns is he judges and then immediately grants mercy and provides pardon. This is the history that God is building through the earth. God's Spirit wishes to come and dwell among a people, and that Spirit who cannot find a place to land hovers, and that hovering is invigorating and creating God's people, and then at some time that Spirit comes and dwells. We saw that when when the Spirit dwelt in Adam and became his breath. We saw that when the dove found a place to land and did not return to Noah. We see that here when God comes down again, just like He came down into the garden and just as He came down in the days of Noah, God comes down to Babel and He observes what's going on and it is not right. He cannot abide in Babel. He is not honored in Babel and therefore He disperses them so that He might fulfill His eternal promise in order to bless them, to bless a gathering out of them. The promise, therefore, given to Abraham is the way that God is answering the sin of Babel. But this promise is merely the way that God will fulfill the promise that was earlier given in the garden, which is how I began, that one of Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent. That's the real blessing, not that Abraham will somehow give a common grace blessing to the nations and give some benefits of technology and medicine. All those things are wonderful, However, the blessing of Abraham to the nations is not the exportation of mercies for men or technologies or gifts or economies or wisdom. No, the blessing that comes through Abraham is the announcement that one of Eve's offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. All of these anticipations and promises, everything from what God did in the garden and God did in the day of Noah and what God did especially at Babel, All of this is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in the sending of the Spirit. God, again, at the sending of the Spirit, is coming to judge what a man has done. But this time, that man has fulfilled God's will completely. In Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, we hear, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I want you to think of this in the context of Babel. Where were they? They had all gathered. The nations had all gathered in one place. And God comes down and He scatters them by confusing their languages. In verse 2 of Acts 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, can you see them? Divided tongues of fire come down and rest on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. God, therefore, at this time, because of the work of the man Christ Jesus, does not send condemnation from heaven, but rather a blessing. Everything that God is doing in Acts 2 is the unbabbling, if you will. Pentecost is the recognition that there has been a great obedience by one, and that obedience of the one has now become a blessing For the many of his people. Instead of expulsion from the garden or from the earth or being scattered over the nations, now God's people have been gathered together and are gathered together not to be divided, but to be healed. God comes down once again and causes their conversation to be divided, indeed, just like at Babel, but not for the purposes of division, but for the purposes of the healing of the nations. The nations which had been scattered throughout the whole world are now gathered together at the season of Pentecost to celebrate in Jerusalem, but they've been gathered by God himself for a different purpose. They have now been gathered to hear the mighty works of God, the whole history of God's redemption through Christ. Though those at Babel were confused to frustration and spread out to all of the different nations, the saints here are speaking one message in many languages. In Acts 2, 5-8, through 8, we hear, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. Listen to the phrase that Luke uses. Devout men from every nation under heaven. History lesson, was every nation under heaven represented at this meeting? No. No one was there from the tribes of the Amazon. I want to assure you that. No one was there from the far reaches of the Tibetan frozen lands. But what Luke is doing is he's recognizing the embryonic promise being fulfilled, even though it's only being fulfilled likewise in an embryonic fashion. In a small little microcosm, every nation under heaven is represented here. Verse 6, at this sound, the multitude comes together, and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. Isn't that exactly what happened At Babel, God divided their language and confused them and sent them out. But now, they're hearing something different. Verse 7, they were all amazed and astonished. They were confused at Babel, and now they're amazed and they're astonished. They're perplexed. They are likewise confused, but for a much better purpose. Verse 7, continuing, saying, are not all of these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? I like to imagine what's going on with Galileans speaking, oh, I don't know, Phrygian. I don't know what Phrygian sounds like, but I would imagine there was a Galilean accent on the Phrygian that was being spoken. (laughs) They're perplexed. This is an amazing thing that has taken place. These devout Jews recognized this amazing miracle, and they had to agree that it pointed to something far greater. This would not have happened unless God was doing something in it, they're thinking. And therefore, we read in Acts 2, 11 and 12, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, what does this mean? They looked at what took place and said, God's hand must be in this. This is too strange to be a coincidence. What is the point of this? Being believing Jews, these men recognized that God himself has now acted to bear witness to some great miracle. Something truly world-changing has happened, and that is that Jesus Christ has begun to reign. Peter stands up and explains that this phenomenon is nothing less than the fulfillment of God's promise to bless and redeem his people by the sending of the Spirit. Peter proclaims that the Messiah had already come, this was the sign to Jerusalem that you have missed your Messiah. And another place in the prophets, God warns, I believe it's either Isaiah or Jeremiah, that he will speak to them through babbling language, that it's a sign that they are rejecting not only Yahweh, but are going to miss or refuse the Messiah. Peter proclaims that the Messiah has already come, was crucified by Israel, and has now been raised to life and exalted to the right hand of God. Do you remember what happened to Adam? He sinned and was expelled out of the garden. The men of Noah's day sinned and were expelled out of the earth. The people at Babel sinned and were spread over the whole earth. What has happened now before the sending of the Spirit? One man has obeyed God's law from the heart loving the father submitting to his will which called him to die on the behalf of the church and now that one man has been raised to life and instead of facing judgment and being expelled he faces blessing and reward and praise and honor and has been exalted to go into the eternal sanctuary as the representative of God's people forever being raised to new life Jesus is never going to die again and the apostles both witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and now to Jerusalem are beginning to testify to it. They're not just being casual observers. This is what I'm calling you to this morning. Christians are not called to be casual beholders of the resurrection, but committed proclaimers. We are not called to witness the resurrection by receiving the photon spiritually speaking, into our eyes. We are called to witness the resurrection by proclaiming it and pronouncing it and speaking it. For Peter, the sending of the Spirit at this time is the great confirmation that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. It's important that we as believers understand that Jesus did not simply leave the earth. This is what happens when we become overly Greek in our Mindset or philosophy, we think the ascension is just, well, Jesus went to another dimension. But what he did is he didn't just leave the earth, but he went up to heaven. He went up to heaven and went there for the purpose of reigning. As a man who has completed the task of his father's sending, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, and then he gave the promise of the Holy Spirit to his people. As the forerunner, a very helpful theological term or title for the person and work of Christ, as the forerunner, Jesus encounters first for his people their death, their resurrection, their ascension, and their reception of the Spirit. Now, therefore, as the mediator of God's people, he has received the Holy Spirit and has poured forth the Spirit upon his saints Because of Jesus' obedience, all that was foreshadowed throughout all of the scriptures has come to completion in the sending of the Spirit in the church. The Spirit who had hovered over the waters has rested upon Christ, not only in His baptism, but now also in His people. Just as Adam breathed in the life of the Spirit into just as as God breathed into Adam the life of the Spirit, now the Spirit of truth not only dwells with us, around us, but dwells in us. We looked a few weeks ago in John 14. Jesus had promised that you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit has truly found a home, a temple of redeemed humanity. Just as Noah sent out the dove and it lighted upon the earth, so also the Spirit rests upon Christ, not only in his baptism, as I said, but also in his present reign. And all of this, again, is tied to Christ's reign. As the nations were sent away from Babel to fill the earth, now Jesus has dispersed the apostles to proclaim his kingdom to all the nations. I saw a heartbreaking chart last night of church attenders. Church attenders who, this was put out by Barna, they're very good at what they do. Church attenders, in their definition, attend church at least half of the year. So, of 52 Sundays, they're in church 26 Sundays. 51% of those who responded answered no to the question of, do you know what the Great Commission is? I want you to think about that for a second. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is the announcement of the point of history. Jesus has won. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He has been raised to life. And half of the church in the evangelical America does not know the single most important thing that he had commanded the apostles to do. In truth, there is a difference between what the apostles were commanded to do and what we are commanded to do. However, we're supposed to be pursuing the same goal. We're never going to write Scripture like the apostles wrote Scripture. But we certainly are called to go to all the nations. And that's the entire point of Pentecost. God is now equipping them to go on the mission. Not only did Jesus in Matthew 28 say to go into all the nations because he has all authority. Also in Luke 24, he says, you will be clothed with power but stay in the city until it happens. Don't leave and go to the nations because the whole point is that God will dwell with man. And if you leave before you receive the Holy Spirit, what are you communicating to the nations? Therefore, how does this impact us as Christ's disciples? I have a few applications. One, first, we must recognize our important part to play in discipling the nations. You, every Christian, you have an important role to play in the discipling of the nations and fulfilling of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not fulfilled by external missionaries alone. It is fulfilled by every Christian. It is supposed to be fulfilled by every Christian. In Acts two, thirty seven through thirty-nine, we hear Peter's response to those who upon hearing the redemptive history brought about in Christ are cut to the heart. In verse 37, it says, now when they had heard this, this history of Israel, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Another application is this, we must not dismiss the importance of the Holy Spirit, his person, his work, nor fail to see the privilege of his presence and activity in our lives. If you are in Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And if that is true of you, according to Romans 8, the Spirit of Christ is leading you into obedience. And you must recognize that God Himself is dwelling within you. Not only dwelling within your body, but working in your life. Not just a mystical reality of God's presence, but His activity. That He is actually desiring to order everything in your life that He would be able to move through you out into the nations to express Christ as we're going to sing this morning for all the world to see. His presence in us is not just a personal blessing, but is a holy power. It is a sanctifying power for righteousness and witnessing. The Holy Spirit was not given just to perform sanctification or just to give charismatic gifts. The Holy Spirit was given so that you could be enabled to witness. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have God Himself ready to speak through you to those around you. Therefore, the final application is this. We must recognize our active participation in the reign of Christ upon the earth. In this church, we have championed the doctrine of the present reign of Christ, that Jesus has been installed at the right hand of God, and he reigns over the nations, and he does whatever he pleases with them. As Psalm 2 says, he is smashing the nations with a rod of iron, and those pieces, like, like at Babel, they scatter. But God also is reigning through Christ in gathering those nations. Some he scatters, and some he gathers. And we have been called by God to have an active role in the participation of Christ's reign on the earth. Christ does not reign in a merely mystical way, but reigns through the deeds of his people. Now, to be sure, when God's people do not obey Christ's reign, from time to time they refuse to do what he wishes. He is not hindered at all. However, one of the chief ways that the reign of Christ is expressed is through the normal means of Christian obedience drawing upon the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in the lives of His people to disciple the nations. The Holy Spirit causes us, we Christians, to be reformed in our souls, to be made new into new creations. And therefore, because we are now new creations, we can be a part of His new creation that He is performing in the earth. We have an active role to play. If Christ is reigning now, brothers and sisters, act accordingly. If he's reigning now, we must speak accordingly. We must have joy accordingly. And we must be called to go and reign upon the earth. That's what we looked at last week in Revelation 5. Revelation 5.10 says that they praised the Lamb for this reason. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. What do priests do? Priests go in before God, and they come out, and they mediate the presence of God To the people. As priests on the earth, we are supposed to mediate God's presence in the earth to the nations around us. Therefore, my calling to you this morning is as those who are called by Christ, let us repent of a low view of the importance of the Holy Spirit in discipling the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great beauty of your scripture, how you are a masterful storyteller, and that you have woven a beautiful covenant history for us to see and learn from and be instructed by. We pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see beautiful things from your word and that in seeing, your spirit would once again come and fill your house, that you would dwell with us and that you would drive us out as you drove Jesus to the wilderness and as you lead the sons of God. Lord, that you would drive us to witness, to share the joy that you've given us with the world around us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Pentecost, for the the wonderful celebration that we have today, and that you would help us to celebrate with joy of what you have done and are continuing to do by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would help us to learn how not to grieve him, how not to quench him, but to bear the fruits of faith and holiness, and that by his strength, we would be able to speak to the world around us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.